Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of the 4040 Vision podcast, the ultimate sports history pod where hindsight is 4040. Before we get started, let's pay some bills and hear from our presenting sponsors. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 4040 Vision podcast. I'm your host, Colette Abdallah. And today I wanted to talk about the perceived arrogance of the U.S. women's national team. I wanted to talk about how it's colored the conversation around this team, how it's really impacted the way that this team has been covered and the discussion around it. And I wanted to, of course, start by, you know, let's let's talk about the perceived arrogance of the team. People have been talking about maybe not so much coming into the World Cup, but maybe during the World Cup, they talked about this team lacking focus. They looked like they were full of themselves, whatever you want to call it. And some of the advertisements are coming into the World Cup were about the rest of the world trying to dethrone this team. And people didn't like that. They thought that was arrogant. And it's important to know that the team itself, you know, the players themselves, Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, Crystal Dunn, all these stars and soon-to-be stars had nothing to do with the the advertisements themselves. They don't decide the creative direction. They just show up, do their part, act, pretend to play soccer, and the commercials filmed and released. But anyway, I wanted to talk about why this perceived arrogance, if you want to call it that, this confidence, whatever, was well-deserved. And I think it's important to note that coming into this World Cup, this team had the chance to do something historic, something that's that's never been done. And we can talk about that a little bit later, but they, coming off back-to-back World Cup victories in 2015 and 2019 uh, in France and Canada, respectively, and they had a chance to three-peat. So, obviously, the team itself, the current iteration of the team, was not the 2015 team, it's not the 2019 team. A lot of the players from those teams are no longer playing. So it makes sense that some people would say, well, you know, you didn't really win that, you know, uh, Sophia Smith or Trinity Rodman or some of these other players that were targeted for criticism. You didn't win those titles. So why are you carrying yourself like you did? And I think it's just it comes with the territory, right? You are, despite not winning these previous titles, if you put on that U.S. Women's National Team shirt, you're going to have some of that swagger, some of that confidence that comes with being a part of the best team in the world at your sport, right? If you think about any other sporting organization that has a legacy of excellence or legacy of victory in soccer, you think about Real Madrid, you put on that shirt, you're going to feel a little something because you're wearing a Real Madrid shirt in football, Nowadays, if you're wearing a Patriots uniform, there's a certain expectation, a certain swagger that you have of, yeah, you know, we've been the best team in in the league for the past 20 years. Nowadays, it's probably the Chiefs, same thing, coming off, uh, you know, two titles in three years. So the jersey itself can give you some confidence. The team that you're on can give you some confidence, even if you haven't been a champion in the past wearing that shirt. So we can kind of throw that point away, right? All these younger girls or younger women that were playing on the team in 2023 were not on the previous teams, but they it makes sense that they would feel a certain type of way. And 
you know, when it comes to the historical significance of what they were trying to do. So the Women's World Cup has been around since 1991. The U.S. team has won it four times, of course, including the, the back-to-back victories in 15 and 19, as we mentioned. But this is also a feat, if they were to three-peat, is something that's never happened in the men's side of the game either. Uh, Italy won back-to-back you know, World Cups, the men's team, of course, in 1934 and 1938. So obviously a very different sport, very different World Cup. I believe that was the second and third World Cups ever after the 1931. And then Brazil, they won in 1958 and 1962. Again, also the sport is becoming a bit more professionalized. The World Cup is more well-known around the world, which is funny to say. You know, I remember my dad telling me, uh, he's born in the mid fifties telling me that, you know, he was watching the world cup or listening to the world cup on the radio as a, as a younger kid. And of course, watching it on black and white TV, um, as a preteen, as a teenager. So, and he grew up in Egypt, by the way, <laughs> I forgot to mention that. So it's, it, it made its way around the world at that point it became a bigger deal, but it's still not the same as it is now. So if you think about it in the men's game, No one has even gone back-to-back since 1962. In the women's game, of course, the the U.S. women's team did it in 15 and 19, so not not that long ago, but even leading up to it in the 15 years prior, no one had gone back-to-back. Even the supposed best team in the world in the the U.S. team, they won in 99, they won in 93, I believe 94, whatever it might have been. Or sorry, 91, that was the one they, they, they won but they didn't go back to back. So it's a big deal. It's a lot of pressure. And there's a reason that it's something hard to do because, okay, you're going back to back. It's, it's tough enough trying to defend a title, but when you're on your third title, that's when it becomes really hard, especially in a world cup where obviously it's not consecutive years. It's not even every two years, it's every four years. So we're talking about, eight years between victories. And that means a whole new generation of players, more than likely a a new coach, new tactics, all that stuff. So aside from it just being really hard to do because you're spanning generations of players from a sporting perspective, from a mentality perspective, it's really hard to do that. It's hard to defend a title. And of course it's hard to defend two titles. It's even harder to defend two titles. And Aside from all that, aside from some of this surface-level commentary on arrogance and confidence and stuff, there were tactical and personnel challenges coming into the World Cup. Uh, if you listen to the excellent World Cup preview that we did with Andre Carlisle of the Diaspora United podcast, uh, he's a women's soccer super fan. He's an expert on the game. He gave the U.S.'s chances out of 10 to win the World Cup out of four. So he was definitely onto something, and people like him – we're definitely onto something. They talked about some of the tactical issues that the team had with their coach, Vlako Andonovsky. He has some rigidity when it comes to his uh, tactics and his team selection that they didn't were not fans of. And you know that the the U.S. team did have some notable defeats coming into the World Cup in the World Cup prep. They did well at the She She Believes Cup, but before that, they had some pretty high-profile losses against some of the bigger teams in the world. But they were also missing some some key players. There were some injuries to some big-name players, 
uh, Katerina Macario, who was supposed to revitalize this attack, Mallory Swanson, uh, I believe Becky Sauerbrunn, if, if I'm getting that right, uh, who was the team's defensive leader, despite being a, a veteran player, was missing. So aside from them being the betting favorite and just people just looking at it, oh yeah, it's the U.S. women's national team. They are the favorite. They should win. There were cracks in the armor. There were reasons for people that were in the know, maybe not casual fans, but real people in the know to be concerned about what this team was going to do. And during the World Cup, we saw these tactical issues very, very plainly. You know, in the opening game against Vietnam, who is one of those teams, you know, bless their hearts, they're there basically to get beat on, (laughs) to lose 4-0, 5-0, 6-0, 7-0, whatever it might have been. The U.S. team did not have a very dominant performance despite scoring a few goals. There were they left a lot of chances um, unfinished. They just didn't look that good against a team that they should have dog walked basically. And then, of course, against the Netherlands, they draw, they score a goal. It's not even from open play; it's from a set piece. They don't have. I think they do one one substitution or Vlaco does one sub in the last thirty minutes, and then then the Group stage finale, they draw with Portugal. They don't score. It's 0-0. They get saved at the end of the game by the post, essentially, where they would have been eliminated in the group stage, which would have been a different conversation altogether. But they still struggle to score. So aside from the Vietnam game, which you can kind of say, okay, yeah, you shouldn't score a few goals there, even if you're not at your best. They scored one goal in open play or sorry, one goal from a set piece in their last two group stage games. And then going into their knockout stage game against Sweden, that went to extra time and they still did score a goal. So we're talking about the last three games, one goal, not from open play in 90 minutes, 90 minutes, 120 minutes. You do the math. So three plus games worth of soccer where they could not score a goal. So the tactical issues were there. The personnel issues were there. There was a lot of talk leading up to the to the tournament about the coach himself not being up to snuff. And of course, as I said, we saw that come to fruition during the tournament. And he pretty actively held back this team, I think, with his team selection, with his lack of rotation. So we can talk about all of these underlying things that were, I don't even want to say underlying, they were the real reasons that this team lost. And we can talk about why that matters and and why it it didn't to some people. But there was a lot of reasons why they didn't win. And it was tactics. It it wasn't a lack of talent. It was coaching. It was all these other things. And that's really what held them back. But what I wanted to focus on today is, I think, the perception of arrogance and what it means to be an arrogant athlete. So as I said, coming into the World Cup, there was this perception or belief that this team was arrogant. And I think athletes in general, you know, you want to see them have some confidence, have some swagger to them. But I think specifically when it comes to female athletes, there is some additional scrutiny that they face when they do things like you know, celebrate a little too hard or they're extra physical or they get into a scuffle or 
whatever it might be. I think a lot of people have these unconscious biases or conscious biases sometimes against women, against women athletes, where if they're not acting in, you know, the stereotypical feminine way, if they're doing things that, you know, male athletes would do, taking off their shirt, beating their chest, again, getting into a scuffle, there's a backlash that happens. And a lot of people don't like that. They don't want their female athletes to act like male athletes, whatever that means. You know, athletes are athletes at the end of the day, in my opinion. When you're in a competition, when you're in a heated competition, when there's big stakes, athletes are going to be wired a certain way to puff their chests out, to act a certain way, to celebrate a certain way. You know, some of them may be more uh, outspoken than others, but at the end of the day, athletes are athletes and they're going to do what athletes do, whether they're, they're men or women. So it didn't matter to me, obviously, which is why I'm talking about this, but I think a lot of people they see Alex Morgan doing the the teacup celebration. They see uh, Megan Rapinoe being super drunk at the World Cup parade and doing a dance and uh, talking a lot of shit. And they have this like visceral reaction to it where it just becomes like, you know, you shouldn't be acting like this. They can't really say why. They just don't like it. And the funny thing is, of course, you know, there's so many male athletes that do the same thing. You know, we, there's memes and countless jokes and videos about, you know, J.R. Smith being shirtless at the NBA championship parade and just being incredibly wasted. There's Tom Brady after his uh, Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He can barely walk when he's doing walk into the boat parade that they had after the Super Bowl. So these things are okay when it comes to male athletes, but all of a sudden the women athletes do it. And it's like, eh, we don't really like that much. Don't do that. You should be cool. You should be humble. You should be feminine, whatever that means. So the, the other thing is a lot of this is driven by the media. And I think that it, it went from, if we're looking back at 2015, the, overwhelming narrative. I mean, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but to me, it seemed like the overwhelming narrative was, you know, let's root for these girls. Let's root for these women to win the world cup. They're America's team. They're going up North to Canada. Let's kick Canada's ass and everyone else's ass. And let's win a world cup. We haven't won one in a little bit. Let's, let's defend our title. I believe in 2011, they lost to Japan in the world cup final. So they wanted to get revenge for that loss. And, it seemed like the whole country was behind them, or if, at least if they weren't behind them, they were kind of ambivalent. Maybe they, oh, okay, the women are playing, women's women's national team are playing, cool. But obviously, in in 2016, something changed in this country: the election of Donald Trump, to state the obvious, and things changed in a major, major way. It went from these women being the face of girls and women all over America to them being the enemies of America for a lot of people. And they went from, again, just this incredible uniting force to, you know, all of a sudden the country is, is a lot more divided. The country is a lot more polarized. So these women who, you know, that's strike number one, you're, you're women and playing sports, doing things that, you know, a lot of people think women shouldn't do or they pretend not to care about. And a lot of these women are are queer or, you know, invisibly queer. 
And that's strike two. And then the third strike for a lot of people is that they are loud and outspoken. You can use the word brash. You can use the word arrogant, whatever you want to use. So that's strike three. And of course, the poster child for this, the lightning rod of controversy becomes Megan Rapino, who is one of the best players on the team. She scores goals for fun. She's an incredible player, I think two-time Ballon d'Or winner. So she's not just a great player from a, you know in the U.S. She's just an incredible world-class player. She's not that anymore, unfortunately. But during that time, she was still kind of at the peak of her powers in 15 and 19. And she, all those three strikes apply to her. Obviously, she's a woman. She is uh, openly queer. And she has, you know, different multicolored hair, which pisses off a lot of people for some reason. And then strike three is she's loud. She's outspoken. She is brash. Again, if you want to use that word, she is very outspoken about equal pay for the women's national team for female athletes. Uh, She speaks on on trans rights and protecting trans kids, which has become a hot button topic. And, And, you know, the trans participation in sports has become a hot topic. She is uh, openly anti-Trump, anti-Republican, anti-MAGA, whatever you want to call it. And she kneeled for the national anthem. You know, I'm not sure if she did it with the women's national team. She probably did. I wouldn't put past her. She's very bold. And she took a stand. She to support Colin Kaepernick, to support Black Lives Matter, whatever you want to call it. So she becomes the very, very easy target for the right-wing media, for – You know, people that want to perceive this team as anti-American because they are speaking against some of the uh, awful things that are happening in this country. So it's it's driven by the media. And I think the unfortunate thing is that, sure, if you're voting for Donald Trump, sure, if you're super Republican, if you believe everything that that he's selling you, if he if you have those beliefs, then sure, I get it. You don't like this team. But I think that mentality of this team is arrogant, this team is that, a lot of these a lot of dog whistles on this team. It's kind of bled into some other folks that wouldn't necessarily identify as Republican or MAGA, but they kind of they they start to nod. They're like, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe she is arrogant. Maybe she does need to shut up. Maybe she needs to stop talking about equal pay and blah 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 and whatever other issue she has, uh, you know, the the, the topic of the day that she's talking about. And it just, it's really unfortunate because it's, it's bled into other, the political spectrum and other people that again, wouldn't normally associate with, with, with Trump. I mean, I saw, you know, if we see Alexi Lawless say this team is arrogant and brash, you're like, okay, yeah, you, you like, (laughs) you like Ron DeSantis. So I get it. But then someone like Taylor Twelman, who seems kind of apolitical is talking about this team being arrogant and them, you know, walking around in a Nike suit or, you know, dancing before the game is, oh, that's bulletin board material. And it's like, oh, that's going to motivate teams. It's like, no, teams are motivated to beat this team because they're coming off two World Cups. They're the best team in the world. So obviously people want to knock them off their perch. Even if they came in quiet as a church mouse to this World Cup, they would still be public enemy number one and the number one target because they're the best team in the world and they're the defending champs. And I think all, all of this with the the, narr- the narrative of arrogance, the uh, fact that a, a large majority, I don't say a large majority, but a, you know, a big part of this country is actively rooting against their own team. You know, if you're, if you have your anti-American 
views. If you are rooting for another country, go ahead, root against the women's national team. I, I don't care. It's none of my business. But if you're a person that claims to be, you know, America this, America that, and you're actively rooting against your national team because a former president says you should, or because you don't agree with their political views, uh, you know, maybe look inward a little bit and wonder what it is, what it really is about these women that you don't like. Is it because they're talking cash shit? Or it's just, you know, you just don't like women. You don't want to see women athletes succeed. So I think the, the other thing is, in general, I mean, arrogance in sports is a good thing. It's just part of the game. Maybe arrogance isn't the word, but, you know, some of the best athletes ever are arrogant. And it's okay to say that, right? Tom Brady, he's arrogant, talks a bunch of shit. You hear his, his NFL films. When he's mic'd up, he's talking smack the entire game. He knows he's the GOAT. He's marketing himself as the GOAT. Michael Jordan, same thing. He probably talked more shit in NBA history than anybody else. And he's lauded for it. He's lauded for his you know, sociopathic winning tendencies and all the stuff that he did. And he's arrogant. LeBron James, the guy has the chosen one tattooed on his, on his back. He calls himself King James. And all of these things are okay because he's winning. And of course, that's the, the key ingredient is your, the public perception of you of confidence versus arrogance versus swagger obviously changes based on the outcome. And that's understood, right? I think as American sports fans, we love to see an underdog. We love to see an underdog come up and punch that bully in the mouth and, you know, essentially become that bully. But then after a while, if you're the bully for too long, then people want to see you get punched in the mouth. People want to, they see everything that you do through a different lens, right? The Warriors are a good example. When they were, uh, when they won their title in 2015, it was like, oh, okay, this upstart team, you know, Steph Curry, babyface assassin, oh, homegrown. This is kind of fun. Let's root for them. Oh, they beat LeBron. Oh, I wonder, you know, good for them. But, you know, he's missing some players. Let's see if this is sustained. And then all summer, the Warriors are talking a bunch of shit. People are talking shit back. <laughs> they win 73 games. They come back, three went down. And then in the finals, that shit talking catches up to them. And it goes from, oh, they're confident. They have swagger to, oh, they're arrogant. We want to see them lose. They lose up 3-1 to the Cavaliers, and it just becomes memes and jokes forever. So it's understandable, right? If this U.S. team, this current iteration of the U.S. team with their quote-unquote arrogance and swag or whatever, if they had won the World Cup this year, then they'd be like, well, oh, they're not arrogant. They're just, they were just confident. They knew they had the tools to win, the, to, to, to win and finish the job. Because in 2019, when they were fighting this battle, you know, they, they were confident. I'm sure they were a little bit arrogant as the defending champions, but they won. And you can't say shit to a winner. You know, it's really hard to talk smack to a team that's, uh, you know, having a championship parade. You know, it's hard to say, oh, I don't like Megan Rapino when she's up on stage in Times Square or whatever they had their parade and she's, you know, wearing her, her gold medal and doing her thing and, dancing it's like you know yo i don't like that but well they would so you can't really say anything about it that's that's the end of it right so sure i'll give you that 
they lost, so they're arrogant. They lost, but I will not agree. I will not sit here and say they lost because they were arrogant. It's not like they went into the World Cup underestimating the Netherlands or Portugal, maybe Vietnam, sure, I'll give them that, or Sweden. They were not doing that. Um, I assure you, that especially the women that hadn't played in the World Cup before, I assure you they were not going in saying, oh, we're the best, we won two titles, we'll be fine. Because they hadn't won those two titles. Maybe some of the older women did, but not the majority of that team. So when it, when when your analysis comes down to a really simplistic view of things and you say, oh, they talk shit, they're arrogant, that's why they lost. It's like, no, we covered why they lost at a surface level because they weren't good enough. They didn't have the right tactics. The coach wasn't up to snuff. He didn't rotate the team enough. They didn't have enough attacking creativity because obviously they were solid defensively. You know, they gave up one goal in four games and it was a nice goal by the Netherlands, but one goal in, in four games is, is an incredible defensive record, but they had no creativity up top. They had issues in, in the midfield and they weren't syncing up. So again, I'll leave the real tactical analysis to the real tactical experts, but that's why they lost. You can talk about, oh, oh, they didn't take it seriously. Like, no, that's all bullshit. They lost because they weren't good enough. And that's it, point blank. So I think essentially what what we need to really sit with is, A, why do I not like this team? <laughs> is it is it really because they're arrogant? Is it really because they talk too much smack? Or is it just because you have some conscious or unconscious biases? If you sit here and tell me, you know, I love Donald Trump. I think these women are anti-American, so I don't want to root for them. Sure. Okay. Whatever. Do your thing. But if you tell me, if you're, you know, oh, I don't like them because I think they're arrogant or I think they talk too much. Like, like what does that mean? What does that really mean? Let's, let's sit with that for a little bit. And I think the, the other thing is, you know, if you're going to be rooting against this team and is it, again, I don't care who you root for and who you don't root for. Is it because you're uncomfortable with female or women athletes acting a certain way? Is it because you don't want to see them puff their chests out and, and again, talk smack and do that thing? Is, is that why you're not rooting for this team? Because I think it's important to make that distinction. It's important to recognize the biases that we have and it's important to, you know, fight against these misconceptions because, I mean, for me personally, if I'm ever on the same side of an argument as Alexi Lawless or Carly Lloyd or Donald Trump or uh, who's that crazy lady, Megan Kelly, I think is her name from MSNBC. You know, if I'm if you're ever on the same side of an argument as these folks, unless you're aligned with them politically, which is a different conversation, but if you're not aligned with them politically and you find yourself on the same side of their of an argument with them, maybe take a step back and wonder, is that really why um, I feel this way? Or is it because of an unconscious or conscious bias that I have? So regardless of, you know, the outcome of, of this world cup, it's been amazing to watch. I mean, it's fun to see underdogs. I think as of now, there are no, uh, past champions left. I'm recording this just after Japan was knocked out on uh, Friday, August 11th. So we're going to get a surprise winner. We're going to get a first time winner, which is amazing for the sport, which is great for the growth of women's soccer. 
Uh, we've seen the growth of women's soccer, uh, you know, explode across the U.S. with the NWSL becoming a more legitimate league with uh, the Premier League teams propping up, you know, their women's teams and having incredible star athletes at these major clubs like Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United. And then, of course, the, the Women's Champions League is becoming one of the premier events in the sport. So you have teams from Germany and the Bundesliga and Spain and everywhere else, these incredible women just playing at the top level. And we're getting to see them do the same thing for their country. So it's been amazing to watch as a sports fan, as a big soccer fan. And it's a good thing that the U.S. has been challenged. You know, it used to be that the U.S. team had the most talent easily the most talent in the world. They had the, uh, the most depth. And now there's serious com conversations about some of these other teams and the challenges that um, they're going to bring to the U.S. So it's a great thing for the sport. It's a great thing for, the, uh, for, you, for women's soccer. And I think this team in its current iteration obviously was not good enough, but we've seen the, the young stars that are coming up, the Trinity Rodmans, the Ashley Sanchez's, the uh, injured players, Katarina Macario that I mentioned earlier, Mallory Swanson, um, Rose Lavelle, I think she's a little bit older. But anyway, this team is going to be the most talented in the world for a long time. Hopefully other teams catch up with them because it's more fun that way. But they're going to be great. Maybe not this World Cup, obviously, well, obviously not this World Cup, but maybe the next Olympics, maybe the next World Cup, whatever other tournaments are coming up. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And they'll be back and when they win again, they're going to still have that same confidence, that same arrogance that you want to call it. But maybe the public perception will be a little bit different. And hopefully some of us will be able to resolve some of these biases that we might have. So that's it for the show. Hope you guys enjoy. Please, please let us know what you think. Leave us some feedback. Hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, wherever. You can find our show just about anywhere podcasts are found. So make sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can find us on all the major social platforms at 4040 Vision Pod, doing some really cool, fun stuff on YouTube and TikTok. We just need more followers, more subscribers. So make sure you do that. And again, we appreciate every view, every listen, every second that you spend with us on, again, on YouTube, on Spotify, whatever it is. We truly, truly appreciate it. So thanks, y'all. Peace out.